take our Bibles this morning and open them to the book of Genesis, chapter 37. Chapter 37 and verse 32. The title of our message this morning is a, a picture of death and resurrection. And as you're turning there, I just wanted to reinvite the men uh, to hear uh, Marshall Slot come speak at our men's group breakfast, uh, 8 a.m. a Saturday morning. And I just want to, as you're, as you're turning to the chapter and verse, I just want to take a moment to thank everybody uh, for the last financial year here at Sugarland Bible Church. Um, we have just been overwhelmed by your financial generosity, uh, both people in the building and people that watch us online. You know, so many times uh, ministries uh, move into the next uh, fiscal year and they don't really take time to acknowledge what happened in the prior budgetary year. And so many times ministries are so interested in, you know, give us money, asking for money all the time. As you know, we don't do that here. But it's just a privilege to be the pastor of this flock and be able to, you know, stand before you, not asking you for money. Just thank you for the generosity that you've given us in uh, the prior year, 2023. So on account of that, let's give the Lord a round of applause. God in the book of Genesis, is raising up a nation. That nation needs patriarchs. And we've seen God work through those patriarchs through the person of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But then we entered the Joseph story where we learned that this uh, special nation needs preservation. God um, has a plan and a program to get the nation of Israel out of Canaan for about four centuries. Get them incubated in Egypt, a place called Goshen, to bring them back into Canaan at the right time. And so the man that God uses to accomplish this work is Joseph. Joseph is not a patriarch. He was raised up by God for the purpose of God's great work of preserving the nation of Israel. So the story of Joseph begins there in Genesis 37, which we've been studying. We're, Lord willing, going to finish that chapter today. It has basically four parts. Joseph's coat, Joseph's dream, Joseph's pit... (laughs) And then the chapter sort of ends with Joseph's enslavement, being sold as a slave into Egypt. Essentially, what happened with that fourth part is Joseph was told by Jacob to go watch his brothers in their shepherding. 
as Joseph um, approached his brothers, his brothers who were very jealous of him because of the coat and because of the dreams that Joseph had, signifying the role that Joseph would play in the outworking of God's purposes, they just decided they were going to kill Joseph. Reuben, the firstborn, literally has to um, detract from this murder. Let's, let's just throw him into a pit. Don't kill him. Let's just leave him for dead. Reuben's plan, of course, is to pull Joseph out of the pit later um, after the murderous brothers aren't paying attention. But essentially what happened is outside of Reuben's presence, the brothers sold Joseph to the Ishmaelites as a slave. So Reuben's plot to rescue Joseph from the pit is now foiled. Joseph has been sold as a slave. He's gone. And so they have to come up with some kind of explanation for for dad. The dad being back in Hebron at this time, not around these events when they happened. And they cover their tracks. They take Joseph's coat, which made them very, very jealous to begin with, and they had they had stripped this coat off of him before throwing him into this pit, and they dip this coat in goat's blood, and they are now in the process of presenting this coat to their father, Jacob, trying to get him to believe, which he does, apparently, that Joseph has been killed by a wild animal, And so that's how they are covering their sin. Of course, the Bible teaches he who covers his sin will not prosper. And we're going to find that these brothers and their plan is not going to work out. And yet God is using it to accomplish his greater purpose of moving Joseph to a different location where he will be elevated to second in command in Egypt by the time he reaches age 30. And from that position, second in command, God will use him to get Israel out of Canaan and down into Egypt. And so we pick it up here with the brothers uh, report to Jacob. And notice, if you will, verse uh, verse 31 is the cover up. The dipping the coat in blood, verse 32, is, is the presentation now to Jacob. Notice, if you will, verse 32. It says, they sent the very colored or multicolored tunic and brought it to their father and said, we found this. Please examine to see whether or not it is your son's tunic. So they had apparently sent servants or... Perhaps some of the younger brothers, the older brothers, maybe sent the younger brothers back to where Jacob was. All of these events took place in Dothan. Dothan is that uh, name and city there, uh, there in the north. And that was a very important location because that's where the trade route went through from Gilead all the way to Egypt. 
and it's God's plan to get Joseph into Egypt. So this location of Dothan is very, very important. But now the brothers have to explain to Jacob what they have done or what has become of Joseph. They have to at least cough up some kind of explanation. So apparently they leave Dothan. Maybe some servants did. Maybe some of the younger brothers did. Maybe all of them did. And they have to report back to Jacob, who is down south in Hebron. In fact, if you look at verse um, 14, I think it is, of Genesis 37, halfway through the verse, so he sent him from the valley of Hebron and he came to Shechem. That's Jacob sending Joseph out. So Jacob is still located in uh, Hebron. And essentially what they do is they deceive Jacob. They make it sound like a, a wild animal or something killed Joseph. When we read the story, we know exactly what happened to Joseph. And I find this interesting because this is yet another example where the deceiver, Jacob, is deceived. Remember, Jacob is the deceiver in Genesis 27. That's why Esau erupted into a murderous rage because of what Jacob did to steal the birthright, the blessing, and these kinds of things that we see in Genesis 27. And this is why Jacob had to flee up north to escape the murderous rage of his brother Esau. And these things are happening in Genesis 27. And it's sort of interesting how, as you continue to read the book of Genesis, the one who did the deceiving is himself deceived several times. He was deceived by Laban. Laban deceived Jacob in Genesis 29, where Jacob thought he was going to get Rachel as his wife. And surprise, you got Leah instead. Deception. The deceiver is deceived. Here, Jacob is being deceived concerning the demise of his favorite child, Joseph. The deceiver is deceived. Genesis 38, if you've been reading ahead, Jacob is going to be deceived by his daughter-in-law, Tamar. There is a principle in the scripture that your sin will find you out. Numbers 32, verse 23, it says this, Be sure your sin will find you out. The book of Galatians, chapter 6, verses 7 and 8 says, Do not be deceived, God is not mocked, for whatever a man sows, he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. Many times we think we're getting away with something and God says you're not getting away with anything. I've seen what's happening and in fact I'm going to put circumstances into motion where you are going to be deceived yourself. And this becomes the way that God causes people to acknowledge their wrongdoing before him so they can receive his grace. The consequences of sin are so blinding and they're so destructive. 
that many times we have to experience what we have in sin done to other people just to acknowledge how all of this has broken the heart of God. It's very difficult for us to acknowledge that until we have to experience some of the pain and some of the problems that we've inflicted onto somebody else. And so when you see this pattern in your life, don't don't uh, resist it. Don't get angry at God because of it. it. It's not as if God is getting even. Uh, it is more related to the fact that he's trying to get us to grow. He's trying to get us to understand that this is sin. This is hurtful. This is destructive. Now, I can either tell you it's destructive or I can make you experience the consequences of that identical sin. And this is what's happening over and over again in the life of Jacob as God is now taking Jacob and bringing him to the next level of growth. And so this uh, uh, brother's uh, showing the coat is accomplished, and now we have Jacob's response to all of these things there in Hebron. Verses 33 through 35, you see Jacob's conclusion, verse 33, Jacob's mourning, verse 34, and then Jacob refusing to be comforted, verse uh, 35. Notice, first of all, Jacob's conclusion, verse 33. Then he, that's Jacob, examined it and said, it is my son's tunic. A wild beast has devoured him. Joseph has surely been torn to pieces. Uh, he recognizes this tunic, although now it's blood-stained, because when you go back to verse 3, he's the one that originally gave this special coat to Joseph. So obviously that's the coat Jacob says that I gave to Joseph, even though now it's stained by stained by blood. And Jacob, as you would expect, at the announcement of the death of one of your own children, particularly one that's favored by you, begins to mourn. And that mourning is described in verse 34. It says, so Jacob tore his clothes. He put sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his son many days. Notice uh, this business here about tearing the clothes. I always find that interesting. When you go back to verse 29, that's the reaction of Reuben. When Reuben looked into the pit, hoping to pull Joseph out, discovering he was not in the pit, because he had been sold, unbeknownst to Reuben, by the brothers to the Ishmaelites. Verse 29, it says, Now Reuben returned to the pit, and behold, Joseph was not in the pit, so he tore his garments. When God's plan starts to move forward, the best intentioned people can't stop it. Reuben wanted to rescue Joseph from all of this, but God had other plans. God is seeking to get Joseph into Egypt So Reuben, although very good intentions, his plan is foiled and he looks into the pit and he probably concludes something has happened to Joseph and he tears his clothes as well. The tearing of the robe, the tearing of the clothes, this is something that Job did when all of the calamities fell upon Job. 
It says in Job chapter 1, verse 20, it says then, Job arose, tore his robe, shaved his head, and he fell down to the ground and he worshipped. Wow. Jesus, when it was obvious to the high priest um, who Jesus was claiming to be, I mean, once they discovered that Jesus was claiming to be the Son of Man, the fulfillment of Daniel chapter 7. This is what the high priest did in Matthew 26, verse 65. It says, Then the high priest tore his robes and said, He is blasphemed. What further evidence do we have or need of witnesses? Behold, you have heard this blasphemy. This, this, this tearing of the garments, tearing, tearing of the robe, Tearing of one's outer clothes. It's, it's a sign of tremendous grief. I mean, some, something big has happened here. It happened in Job's life. He recognized it through the tearing of his robe. It happened with the high priest. Something big. Here's a man that's claiming to be the fulfillment of Daniel 7, and he tore his robe. And, and Jacob here is doing the exact same thing. And as Jacob is tearing his robe, he is mourning. Verse 34. So Jacob tore his robe. He put sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his son many days. And let me assure you of the fact that this mourning was accompanied by tears. Because if you look at the end of verse 35, it says of Jacob, so his father wept for him. Joseph is a type, as we've tried to explain, and we'll continue to try to explain as we move through this material, of Jesus Christ. The pattern of Joseph's life is a pattern that Jesus himself will experience. When Jesus died on that cross, there was great weeping. Mark chapter 16 and verses 9 through 11 says, Now after he had risen early on the first day of the week, he first appeared to Mary Magdalene, from whom he had cast out seven demons. She went and reported to those who had been with him while they were mourning and weeping. When they heard that he was alive, that is Jesus, and had been seen by her, they refused to believe it. Now, this is exactly what's happening with Joseph. He is as good as dead. And in fact, any rumor to the effect that he is alive, because he is, and he is actually going to be elevated to second in command in Egypt, just like Jesus Christ, following his ascension, was elevated back to the right hand of God the Father. You see the symmetry there? the resurrection of Jesus will be so uh, profound to the point where people won't even believe it's true initially. I find it interesting that we're coming up now on Resurrection Sunday. I think that takes place, um, what is it, the end of 
the Sunday, last Sunday in March, if I've got my calendar right. I find it interesting that at this time of the year, the Lord would be having us study this material. Because I don't plan my sermons, as you probably can observe. I just start teaching through the Bible. I don't say, okay, by such and such a date, we're going to be at this point in the book of Genesis. I thought the book of Genesis would be like a 10-part series. That hasn't worked out exactly like I thought. But you have to at some point acknowledge the hand of God in, in, in this sort of teaching ministry where the Lord would have us in the identical parts of the Bible through his providence and his sovereignty during the time of the year when we celebrate the death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because the nation of Israel, yet future, will weep over Jesus. Just like Jacob is weeping here over Joseph. Zechariah 12 and verse 10, it says, I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication so they will look upon me whom they have pierced. In other words, there's coming an acknowledgement that we had it wrong nationally concerning Jesus Christ. And they, that's the Jewish people, will will mourn for him, just like Jacob is mourning over Joseph. As one mourns for an only, only son, and they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping of a firstborn. And, and the disciples, the believing disciples were weeping at the death of Christ. And the death of Christ was so astronomical to them they couldn't consider the reality that he has risen. He's risen from the grave to the point where they wouldn't believe it. This is exactly what Jacob is going through concerning Joseph. I mean, the the trauma that he is under concerning the death of his son, his favored son, is so severe that when he gets word that He's actually alive in, in Egypt. He's, he's second in command. Just like Jesus has ascended to the right hand of the Father. He just won't want to believe it's true. And yet it is true. The story of the Bible is not the story of a suffering Savior. That's a big part of it, believe me. But that's not the complete story. The complete story is that Jesus Christ was victorious over the grave. And because he was victorious over the grave, as we are connected to him by way of faith, we will be victorious over the grave as well. A lot of people in this day and age with the emphasis on apologetics and defending the faith, all valid and valuable ministries, by the way, will focus so much on the empty tomb as the evidence that Jesus is God. And that's all true. The empty tomb proves he's God. The emphasis on that causes us to miss the bigger picture. The bigger picture is this. I can walk through this life where death is all around us with hope and optimism because his victor victory 
over the grave means that I'll have victory over the grave. Because his resurrection is the first fruits of the other resurrections to come. First fruits, you'll see Paul developing this first fruits concept. Comparing first fruits to resurrection, you'll see Paul doing this in 1 Corinthians 15, 20 through 23. First fruits was a very happy time in the nation of Israel as the initial crop came in. Because as the initial crop came in, it was a guarantee that the rest of the crop, the general harvest, and later the gleanings will transpire as well. I am thrilled that the tomb was empty and no one has ever come up with an explanation to explain away the empty tomb, not only because it proves that Jesus is God, but it gives me hope. Because he he rose, I'm going to rise. I'm going to receive my resurrected body at the general harvest, which would be the rapture of the church. And then those saved in Old Testament times that weren't a part of the church, looking forward to a Messiah that was coming, those saved in the tribulation period after the church has been translated to heaven, they too will participate in the resurrection program at what's called the the gleanings. Because he rose, we will rise as well meaning that the body that we're in and the world that we're living in is just temporary. And it unleashes tremendous hope in the life of a person who will receive these truths and embrace them. It allows you as a Christian to live above the norm in which the rest of the world operates by. The rest of the world, what are they really doing? Their emotions go up and down based on their circumstances. They really have no explanation for death at all, let alone the solution. And yet and yet, you as a Christian have that. It allows you to have a sense of calmness, stability, and tranquility in the midst of some of the worst storms of life. And it's all prefigured here roughly 2,000 years before it happened in this person of Joseph who the Holy Spirit, I believe, is using as a prefigurement or a type of Jesus Christ. So here is Jacob reaching his conclusion. Joseph is dead. He's not. Here he is mourning and weeping. And then as you go to verse 35, you see his refusal to be comforted. Look at verse 35. It says, then all his sons and all his daughters arose to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted and said, surely I will go down to Sheol. In the morning or in mourning rather, for my son, so his father weeped for him. Now, you might wonder, these sons and daughters, um, we haven't read much about daughters. Where do these daughters come from? We have a lot of sons. 
Well, one of the daughters that was born to Leah, you'll remember, was named Dinah. She is mentioned in Genesis 30, verses 19 through 21. It says, Leah conceived again and bore a sixth son to Jacob. Then Leah said, God has endowed me with a good gift. Now my husband will dwell with me because I have borne him six sons. So she named him Zebulun. These are where the tribes of Israel came from. And then Genesis 30 verse 21 says, Afterward she bore a daughter named Dinah. And Dinah is a big deal in Genesis 34 because she is sexually violated. Simeon and Levi react to that as the Canaanites inflicted this on her sister by killing everyone in Shechem. And when Jacob learned of the overreaction to Simeon and Levi, he said, you you have done a disservice. You have made me odious amongst the Canaanites because they're all going to be trying to kill us from this point on. And so Genesis 34 becomes an explanation as to why God has to take the nation of Israel out of Canaan and bring them to Egypt. Had they been left in Canaan, they would have been attacked over and over and over again. What we're reading here about Joseph is answering the what question. What's happening? God is transferring his people out of Canaan to Egypt. What Genesis 34 answers is the why question. Why the move? And I'm sort of preparing you for this because Genesis 37 is followed by Genesis 38, which J. Vernon McGee called the weirdest chapter of the Bible. And so you'll be reading uh, the Joseph story with your children your grandchildren, everything's fine. And then you'll get to Genesis 38 and you'll say, what is this doing here? Is this, is this a misprint? It will seem totally uh, unrelated to the Joseph story. It will, destroy, it will describe immorality in the goriest of terms. And you, you'll read through that and you'll say, well, I, I want to get back to the Joseph story. Can we just skip this and get to chapter 39? Because that's what I'm familiar with. But the truth of the matter is you have to have Genesis 38 just like you have to have Genesis 34. Genesis 34 with Dinah and Genesis 38, Jacob and Tamar, are not answering the what question. They're answering the why question. The what issue is get the nation out of Canaan into Egypt. Why? I'm glad you asked. Genesis 34 is your answer and Genesis 38 is your answer. But this is how Dinah, you know, relates to all of these things. And so she was one of the daughters of Jacob. In fact, the first one. And when you go to Genesis chapter 46 and verse 7, apparently Jacob had other daughters. It says his sons and his grandsons with him, his daughters and his granddaughters. 
and all his descendants brought them, he brought them with him to Egypt. Genesis 46 verse 15 says, These are the sons of Leah whom she bore to Jacob in Padan Aram with his daughter Dinah. All his sons and all his daughters numbered 33. So that's where these daughters that seem to mysteriously show up here, you know, came from. It's just there's not a lot of explanation of their origin, but Jacob had other children, including daughters, his first daughter being Dinah, who's the instrumental figure in Genesis 34, which answers not the what question, but the why question. Why the move from Canaan to Egypt? Why is God raising up Joseph for this? And so here come all of his family. He, he, he thinks his son is dead. And they're all coming as a family does in times of crisis and they're comforting him, including daughters. But it says here, he, that's Jacob, refused to be comforted. I mean, you can understand where he's coming from. I think one of the worst pieces of news a, 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 a person can ever get is that their child has predeceased them. I mean, I, I, you know, of all of the things that could happen to a person, I think that's one of the worst things that could happen. Your, your child is dead. And so Jacob doesn't want to be comforted. The truth of the matter, though, is Paul the Apostle uses a title to describe God. And he calls God the God of all comfort. All meaning God is capable of comforting the human heart regardless of the distress, even the the very worst distress a person can receive, the death of their one of their children. God's comfort can even minister to a person in that circumstance. It's just Jacob is so heartbroken, he didn't want to be comforted. And yet comfort is available. Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 1 verses 3 and 4 says, Blessed be the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort who comforts us in all our affliction so that we will be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort which we ourselves are comforted by God. I mean, you can go through life um, shutting God out. You can do that. This is so bad, I refuse to be comforted in this circumstances. That's where Jacob is coming from. I get it. It's a very human, natural reaction. But the truth of the matter is, when you shut out the comfort of God, you're living beneath your privileges. I mean, you can live there if you want, but you don't have to. Because God is the God of all comfort. God is the one that has the ability to minister to the deepest needs of the human heart, regardless of the disaster. A pastor can't do that for you. 
Because a pastor is just a human being. A pastor can try, but he can't minister the way God can minister. An elder board can't do it. A deacon board can't do it. You could pay, uh, I don't know how much people pay today for counseling, a lot of money. And they're, they're looking for this comfort. And there's a lot that a human counselor can help someone with, particularly if they're coming from a Bible-based framework. But a human counselor cannot get into the deep recesses of the human heart Only the God of all comfort can do that. And this text here, 2 Corinthians 1, 3 and 4, starts to explain why God allows us to go through times of discomfort. We go through times of discomfort so we can experience the comfort of God who comforts us in all our distress. And then the Lord knows exactly what he's doing. He brings someone into your life three years down the line, five years down the line, ten years down the line, who's who's now going through something similar to what you went through. And because you've received the comfort of God in the midst of that, you, you know exactly what to say to that person. Because you've stood in their shoes. You know how to direct them to the Lord. I mean, a, a person that has never gone through that circumstance, what, what, what could they contribute to the conversation? But the person that's walked through the valley and experienced the comfort of God in the midst of the valley, man, they're quite a minister which is a completely different way of looking at our circumstances. Maybe this circumstance is in your life because God wants to comfort you in the midst of that circumstance. Don't shut him out, out of bitterness. Receive from the God of all comfort because God who is omniscient knows what's going to happen five years down the road. And he's preparing you for a circumstance in ministry that you can't even see yet. You don't even know the person, perhaps, who God is going to bring across your path. And so we need to be open to the comforting of God. Number one, because we need it. And number two, it's, it's a form of ministry preparation. So it is sort of disappointing that Jacob has this mindset where he just refuses to be comforted. And he says here uh, at the end of verse 35, and he said, Surely I will go down to Sheol in mourning for my son. So his father wept for him. What is Sheol? Well, Sheol just means death. And people typically take that as, well, that's just the common grave. We're all going to die. I think Sheol, when you allow the Bible to develop the concept biblically, which the Bible will do, it's a book of progressive 
revelation, things taught in seed form early on are developed in the latter pages of Scripture. Latter pages of Scripture never contradict the initial seed, but they give more amplification and more clarification. I think you'd be shocked as to what the Bible says about this place called Sheol. Arnold Fruchtenbaum writes, Jacob's refusal is stated. He refused to be comforted. And he said, for I will go down to Sheol to my son in mourning and his father wept for him. Arnold Fruchtenbaum says Sheol, and he's obviously borrowing from latter scripture. He's looking at the totality of biblical data on the subject. He says Sheol is the center of the earth. And before the death of the Messiah, all souls descended there upon death. But the faithful and the unfaithful entered into different compartments of Sheol. Now, where do we get additional treatment on that? You get it in Luke 16, verses 19 through 31, where the rich man died in unbelief. He went to Sheol, but he went to a place of torment within Sheol. The poor man, Lazarus, died in faith, and he went to Abraham's bosom, also part of Sheol. If I'm understanding my Bible correctly, in between the resurrection and ascension of our Lord Jesus Christ, Jesus went into Sheol. He went to the part of it that was a place of comfort. And he brought all of those people with him up into heaven. The place of discomfort, sometimes called Hades, sometimes called torments, continues to exist for the unsaved in the center of the earth. Oh, come on, pastor. Everybody knows this is just parabolic language. Luke 16. Hmm. Doesn't say it's a parable. Generally, when Jesus tells a parable, he'll say, learn the parable of, etc. Doesn't say that here. Interesting thing about parables, people retreat to this parabolic language because they, they don't want to believe such a place like this even exists, particularly for the unsaved. Interesting thing about parables is parables don't use personal names of people. If I'm reading this right, I see personal names of people. Number one, Lazarus. Number two, Abraham. Number three, Moses and his law is mentioned in this at the very end. This is what the unbeliever experienced when he went into Sheol. He says he cried out and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus so that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue for I am in agony in this flame. This kind of teaching had to come from Jesus. Because if this did not come from Jesus, we wouldn't believe such a place exists. You'll notice that Jesus talked more about things like this than he did about heaven. Did you know that? Why is that? Because who would ever believe such a place exists 
unless it came from the mouth of the incarnate Son of God, who can't lie. I mean, if some other person was telling me about this place, I'd just dismiss it. Verse 25, but Abraham said, child, remember that during your life you received good things and likewise Lazarus bad things. But now he is being comforted here and you are in agony. Kind of interesting that this um, man in agony could remember backwards in his life. Remember his five brothers who were on the same course of unbelief in life that he was on that ended up him up in this place. Besides all of this, between us and you, there is a great chasm fixed so that those who wish to come over from here to you will not be able to and that none may cross from there to us. Sheol, a technical scriptural understanding. Jacob is in such a torment related to the death of Joseph that he's literally saying, I just want to go to hell. I think that's what he's saying here. And he uses this word Sheol. And I know it's tempting to say, well, that's just the common grave, but allow the Bible to interpret it itself. And you'll see there's something much bigger here. Folks, as as y'all know, this is why Jesus came into the world. So we wouldn't have to go to a place like this. You know, we, we, (laughs) We throw around this word saved all the time. Are you saved? When did you get saved? How old were you when you got saved? Give us your testimony. If you're asked the question, saved from what? I mean, the whole concept of being saved means that you're rescued from something. Isn't that what it means? You know, if if I'm saved from drowning in the ocean, it means someone pulled me out of the ocean. I'm saved from... The ocean, I'm saved from drowning. This is what save means. So you wouldn't have to go there. Because Jesus stepped out of eternity into time as we're celebrating. Coming up, Holy Week. The death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of our Lord Jesus Christ. By the way, beautifully prefigured by Joseph. So I wouldn't have to go. Praise the Lord. See how Christianity is a bit more than your best life now? Hey, invite Jesus into your life and he'll give you fulfillment. He'll give you the right job. He'll provide for your finances. By the way, he does all those things, I think, largely in his goodness. But that's not the gospel. The gospel is protection from something that exists that's bigger than myself that I need to be saved from. From Sheol. And so here is Jacob in his distress refusing to be comforted. Meanwhile, back at the ranch, what's going on with Joseph? Verse 36, he sold a second time. It says, meanwhile, the Midianites sold him to Egypt. To Potiphar, Pharaoh's officer and the captain of the body guard. We have the seller, 
the Midianites, the place where he is sold, Egypt, the person he is sold to, a man named Potiphar. What in the world is going on here in the Bible when it says he's sold by the Midianites? I thought these people were the Ishmaelites. I mean, weren't they called Ishmaelites in verse 25? Why the switcheroo to the Midianites? The Ishmaelites came from the unholy union between Abraham and Hagar. The Midianites came from Abraham's second marriage after Sarah had died to Keturah. And that's where the Midianites came from. And we know historically that the two groups merged. They became allies. Arnold Fruchtenbaum says there is an interchange of terminology between the Ishmaelites and the Midianites. And those two nationalities were often connected together, i.e. Judges 8, 22 through 26, and you'll see it. They were allies and Midianites. They were allies and Midianites were eventually absorbed by the Ishmaelites, which you would expect to have fleshed out in the book of beginnings because the book of Genesis is showing us where the nations came from. The nations opposing Israel as they were making their way into the promised land under General Joshua. That's why this information is here. Because you're going to be around your children and your grandchildren in this age of skepticism, and they will have watched something on TikTok, which is where they're getting their information from. Did you know that? The youth of America are not getting their information from news shows and reading books. They're getting their information from TikTok. These little quick, you know, minute, two-minute, 30-second things that Satan uses to launch his fiery darts into their little minds, getting them to doubt the Bible. So your grandchildren and your children come to you and say, hey, you know, you believe the Bible is true, don't you? Yeah, I believe it's true. Well, how come the Ishmaelites are called the Midianites here? And you're thinking to yourself, oh... And then you'll say, well, wait a minute. There was a sermon about that at Sugarland Bible Church. Let me look that up. And you look it up and you hear this answer and you see the sources I'm getting the answer from. And now you have an answer. See, that's why I go over these little fine points, not to bore you with technical details. I'm trying to prepare you, prepare us to be apologists in these last days. Peter calls us to be apologists, doesn't he? Apologist is not somebody who apologizes for their actions. Apologist comes from the Greek word apologia, which means defense. First Peter 3, verse 15. Sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you particularly someone watching TikTok, by the way. The Bible doesn't say that, but I added that. 
little commentary, to a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is within you, watch this, yet with gentleness and reverence. So I'm not to take the information and pound people so far into the ground they'll never see the light of day again. I'm to speak the truth in love. But we're still called to speak the truth. That's why little details like the Midianites and the Ishmaelites actually have some significance. So it's the Midianites that sell Joseph to the this group going to Egypt, the place. Verse 36, sold him in Egypt. Where is Egypt? It's down south. God has organized everything so that Joseph would get down south into Egypt because Joseph at age 17 has no idea what's happening. But God knows. God knows what's going to happen at age 30 where he's going to be elevated to second in command and he is going to be someone that will be used by God to get the Canaanite, uh, the Israelites out of Canaan. Why does God have to get the Israelites out of Canaan? I'm so glad you asked. Genesis 34, Genesis 38. If you don't have a Genesis 38, as weird as it is, you don't have an explanation as to as to why God is doing this. That's why Moses has arranged this material the way he has. This is God's plan. Once God's plan is in motion, you can't stop it. Just ask Reuben about it. Reuben thought, ah, just throw him into the ditch. We'll get him out. God says, I got other plans, Reuben. Appreciate the sentiment, but not even your good sentiments can stop what I'm about to do. And then the person is given, Potiphar. It says, meanwhile, the Midianites sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, the Pharaoh's officer, the captain of the bodyguard. Notice that this man, Potiphar, is called the officer of Pharaoh. He is a leader in Egyptian military. Egypt being the dominant political power of the day. He is also called the captain of the bodyguard, which some believe means the chief of the executioners. And his name, Potiphar, means the gift of Ra or Ra. You say, well, who is Ra? Ra is the Egyptian sun god. The Egyptians had a panoply of gods they worshipped. One of them was the sun, not S-O-N sun, (laughs) S-U-N sun. By the way, this is why God did the works that he did in the book of Exodus, the ten plagues. God is mocking each of the Egyptian deities in their polytheistic pantheon. You want to worship the Nile? Go for it. I'll turn the whole thing to blood red. You want to worship frogs? I will multiply so many frogs all over Egypt, you won't know what to do with them. You want to worship the sun, S-U-N? I'll just make it dark. Don't think God doesn't have a sense of humor in how he operates. 
And so here is this uh, 17-year-old kid who got a coat, got some dreams, and his whole world, from his perspective, has totally fallen apart. He's, he's being sold against his wishes into a political system he doesn't know anything about. He's being sold against his wishes into a religious system that he doesn't know anything about. And he's not even going to be able to put the pieces together until another 13 or so years. And God's probably only ex- exhortation to him at this point, if even that, was just trust me, I know what I'm doing. Kind of sounds like us, doesn't it, in this world system that we're living in. Did you know that First Peter 2 verse 11 calls the Christian in this world strangers and aliens? Just like Joseph being shipped into a system he knew nothing about. We don't even belong here. And yet, 1 Peter 1, verse 17 tells us to conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth. (laughs) Your sojourn. You're just here temporarily passing through an earth that doesn't have your value system at all because it doesn't know Jesus. And we don't understand everything that happens to us. And God is just saying, I want you to trust me. I know what I'm doing. And if you want encouragement in the midst of that, look at what Joseph went through. It it ends here, verse 36, to Potiphar, Pharaoh's officer, the captain of the guard. Now look at chapter, skip a chapter. It's okay. I said you could do it just for the next 30 seconds. Look at chapter 39, verse 1. Now Joseph had been taken down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an Egyptian officer uh, of Pharaoh, the captain of the bodyguard, brought him, bought him from the Ishmaelites. Notice it just switched there, back from the Midianites to the Ishmaelites who had taken him down there. I mean, verse 1 of Genesis 39 reads almost the same as Genesis 37, verse 36. And as you're reading the story, you sort of expect, I don't know, chapter 39 to follow chapter 37. But it doesn't do that. You're reading this story to your children and your grandchildren or you're having family devotions. Hey, let's study the Joseph story. And you enter into chapter 38, which is the weirdest chapter of the Bible. J. Vernon McGee said that. And you, and most people have no idea what, what to do with this. It's so weird. But I'm telling you what to do with it. What you do with it is you embrace it just like you embrace chapter 34 with Dinah. Not answering the what question, but why. Once you see that, the chapter fits perfectly. And so we'll begin studying that chapter next week. But for now, 
we leave chapter 37, which featured Joseph's coat, dreams, pit, and enslavement. We invite anybody within the sound of my voice to be saved, as we talked about earlier, from something that most people don't even acknowledge exists, eternal retribution. Jesus stepped out of eternity into time to die on that cross 2,000 years ago, and his final words were, it is finished. Don't try to fix yourself, you can't. Don't try to save yourself, you can't. Trust, which is another word for believe, and what I did for you 2,000 years ago. If anybody within the sound of my voice has never done that, I would invite them to respond to the convicting ministry of the Spirit of God who was sent into the world to convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. Sin because they do not believe. See, there's only one sin that's going to send you into the lake of fire. Only one. And it's not gambling, divorce, pornography, abortion, homosexuality. It's the sin of unbelief. God forgives any and all sin except that one. Going through one's life, being convicted by the Lord, and you say no, 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 and you die in that state. You can't reverse or undo that one. So why play games with your eternity? Put your faith exclusively in Jesus Christ. It's not something you have to walk an aisle to do, join a church to do, give money to do. It's a private matter between you and the Lord where you trust. It's a condition of the heart in the person of Jesus Christ. If it's something you need more explanation on, I'm available after the service to to talk, shall we pray. Father, we're grateful for this historical account and how it speaks to our lives. Help us with greater understanding from your spirit as we seek to navigate a tougher chapter of the Bible. We'll be careful to give you all the praise and the glory. We ask these things in Jesus' name and God's people said.